0: Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians 4. This is our last sermon in our Colossians series. For those of you who have been here this summer, we will be finishing it up today. Um, and we get to a passage that's kind of unique um, because it doesn't, you know, most of Colossians is this argument that Paul is making that Christ is superior and the best, and, um, and then uh, talks about how you, that should change our lives, and then he gets to this section right at the end where he basically just name drops a whole bunch of names. Um, and he lists a whole bunch of people uh, who he works with or who are parts of the church, part of the church, the early church. Um, and as we read it, it's kind of hard to know how to interpret it. In fact, as we were looking at it at our men's Bible study this past week, um, we kind of left like, okay, well, I don't really know who these people are. It's kind of hard to know what God is trying to teach us by preserving these names and this, this list of greetings. Um, in the scriptures. But if you do a little detective work, which was my job this week, you kind of get to know a little bit about each of these characters. And mean, I think we're going to learn a little bit about uh, what the early church was like and even what our church uh, should look like by looking at some of these early church members. So we're going to read. We're going to read starting in verse 7, and we're going to read till the end of the book. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you uh, for your word, and we're thankful that even in passages that are, are less clear what you're trying to teach us, your word never returns void because the Holy Spirit is active within it, um, teaching it to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that this morning uh, you would teach us what it means to be the church, to truly be the church, uh, through looking at uh, what the church looked like when you first founded it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you grew up in the late 80s or early 90s, um, like I kind of did, um, I mean, was not, eh, not really, I didn't really remember it, but some of you do, and some of you guys remember the late 80s, early 90s, and you would, if you do, you would remember a band or a R&B uh, German uh, electronic group known as Milli Vanilli. Some of you laugh because you know that Milli Vanilli is not so famous today for being uh, an amazing musical artist. They are more infamous nowadays, but in the late, later 80, the late, the late 80s, they were beginning to grow in popularity as uh, uh, they gained international acclaim. They even won Grammys for Best New Artist. But all of that came crashing down in 1989 when they were doing a live concert in front of the entire world on MTV. And in the middle of the concert, all of a sudden, it sounds like the singer is repeating the same line over and over and over again. You find out the reason for that is because they weren't actually singing or performing their own music. They were traveling around the world lip syncing everything. Um, and so they got their Grammy removed, everything, um, but what you realize is the actual work for all this music that they have been gained acclaim from was actually performed by studio musicians behind the scenes. The real work of Millie Vanilli was not by... Millie and Vanilli? I don't know what their names are. Um, was by the people who were in the recording studios performing the instruments, singing the music, and then they would just get up on stage and dance around and pretend Uh, like they were the ones doing it. In the church, my question this morning is, who has the job of the church? Who is doing the real work of the church? I think it's often common to think that it's the leaders, right? It's the pastors. It's the people up front. It's the elders or it's the children's ministry directors or it's the administrators. It's the people who have these public offices that are in leadership. Those are the people who are doing the work of the church. And we just come and we receive from it. But that is not the Pauline vision at all. Pauline vision says that actually, or that Jesus' vision either, but Jesus' vision for the church isn't that the leaders, it's built on the leaders and their gifts. The church is actually built on the gifts of the individual body. It is built on the work the body is doing in loving one another. Sure, you can have the most amazing speaker in the entire world. You can have an incredible children's program, an incredible youth program. But the church is not the church unless the body of believers is doing the real meat and potatoes work of loving one another. That's what makes the church the church. It's not the people up on stage. It's the people out there. It's all of us. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to us, I think, as we look at this list of names he gives us in Colossians. Um, As you dive in and you learn about uh, who these people were and the ways that they were interacting in the early church, we get a glimpse, we get a picture of what early church was like, and therefore what it is like that the church should be, how the church should be amongst one another. So this morning I want us to learn to love each other well from the ways that we see these early church members, these normal people without titles, loving each other well. Three points I want us to look at this morning. The first is that the love of the church needs to be self-sacrificing. The love of the members of the church needs to be reconciling And third, the the love of the members of the church needs to be faithful and consistent. So let's look at uh, self-sacrificing. The love of the early church is self-sacrificing. What I'm going to do is, for each of my points, I'm going to take a a glimpse, a little, we're going to peel back the layers of who some of these people are, we'll talk about them, and then we'll kind of talk about what that means for us today. Um, I see self-sacrifice particularly from three Different people mentioned here. The first of which is the first one mentioned. You have Tychicus here in verse seven. It says, "Tychicus, Tychicus, I don't know, a uh, Tychicus. Who knows? I uh, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may be he may encourage your hearts." What we learn from this as we read about Tychicus is that we learn that he is going to be the one that is taking the letter from Rome where Paul is currently in prison, um, this letter to the Colossians, and he is going to be delivering it alongside of a letter to the pers- an individual letter to a guy named Philemon, um, which we also have in our Bibles. He's going to be taking both of those letters, and he is going to be going to Colossae, and he is going to be delivering them. But what we also know from the way that Paul introduces him is that the church in Colossae does not know who this guy is. He's a stranger to them. So he introduces them to tell them, hey, you can trust this guy. He's from me. Um, but you realize that Tychicus is traveling this uh, 2,100 kilometer journey from Rome all the way to Colossae for the primary purpose of just encouraging these Christians that he has never met before. He gives up his comfort, his time, probably a year of his life, just to go to Colossae to deliver this letter to encourage this local church, to be an encouragement to them, to support them, because he loves the church so much. He loves his brothers and sisters, even though he has not met them. The second two people we see are kind of in the same boat. You have Aristarchus here um, in verse 10. You have Epaphras in verse 12. Aristarchus and Epaphras are good friends of Paul. Um, and it, in between here and in the book of Philemon, we see that Aristarchus and Epaphras are both called fellow prisoners with Paul. So Paul is in prison. He's been taken there. He appealed to King Agrippa in the book of Acts, and King Agrippa says, okay, you can go see Caesar if you want. So they, uh, the Romans carry him to Caesar, where he is going to face trial and imprisonment. And Aristarchus jumps on the journey with Paul. Even though Aristarchus is not required to go to prison, Aristarchus isn't um, in trouble, he decides to partner with Paul, even as Paul is arrested and taken miles away to another country. And then another point, Epaphras, at some point, makes his way to Rome, and he also ends up in prison with Paul. The assumption here is that neither of these guys were actually in prison themselves. Neither of them had been arrested, but yet they had chosen to make themselves prisoners purely because of their deep love for Paul and their desire to love the early church. They had wanted to give up their comfort, their freedom even, in order to participate with Paul in the work that he was doing, in order to encourage Paul alongside of it. So what you see here is you see three people who have given up significant comfort, time, resources in order to love their brothers and sisters in the faith. This is the same kind of self sacrificing love that we are called to have for one another. Look here at Epaphras. Even as he's suffering in prison, even as he is um, uh, far away from his family and his friends, he's actually from Colossae, we learn. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you He is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Even as Epaphras is in prison, his heart is still for his people. His heart is still deeply loving them, seeking what is good. He can't be there with them, and so he does what he knows is the most powerful thing, and he prays for them. He keeps them deep on his heart. For us, the other people in this room, the other people in this community need to be people whom we are self-sacrificially loving. They need to be people that we are deeply praying for. They need to be people who uh, whose needs we know and can support and attend to. Some people think this is primarily the job of the leaders of the church. You know, the pastor goes and prays with someone. The deacons give money and help people with financial things, and da-da-da-da-da. But that is true. We do have certain specific responsibilities, but ultimately, this is the job of you. This is your job to be doing with one another. We cannot love and support every single one of you, and nor nor should we. This is the calling of the church, to be self-sacrificially loving for one another. What would it look like for this community to be more self-sacrificial in the way that it loves one another? What would it look like for you individually? What, are you, what is God calling you to give up? Your time, your comfort, your energy, your resources, to love those in this room without you? Without going into like, Some of even the bigger sacrifices, because many of you are not going to be going to prison for one another. You're not going to be dying for one another, most likely. Um, Just look at this room. Just think about this room. As you look around this room, do you know people well enough to love them? In order to love someone, in order to care for their needs, in order to self-sacrificially give to them, you have to know their needs. Do you know people in this community well enough to be able to love them in this way? Now, hear me first. If you're a visitor, or if you are a recent uh, new attender, and you've just gotten plugged in at the very beginning, we hope that one day you will be here with us. But I'm not mainly talking to you right now. I'm mainly talking to those of you who have been here six months or more. If you've been here six months, you are a long-timer at United Church of Bogota. Maybe not as long as Evelyn Bernal, but you are a long timer at this church. You are a big part of this community, and that means when you come here on Sunday mornings, you should be thinking not what can I am here to just receive, but what am I here to give? Who can I love? Who do I need to reach out to? Think about it in a few ways. One, there are new people in this congregation every single week. I won't make you raise your hand if you're new. Don't worry. Every single week, I have not been here a single Sunday in my entire six years here in Bogota have I been to this church without at least one person being there for the first time. That's amazing. That's super exciting. Are we looking around trying to see the people who are new? Are we moving towards them or are we only moving towards the people that we're already comfortable with? Are you going towards new people? Okay? Today, I give you complete liberty to go up to people and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. What's your name? And you might find out that person's been attending this church for four years and you thought they were new. That's okay. Today you get complete forgiveness for that. But go up to the people, just assume, if you don't know their names, ask them their names. Get to know them. That's the beginning. And that's just the beginning. I also want to say a couple other things. One, some of us in here are expats, meaning Columbia is not our home. A lot of us are here are expats, meaning Columbia is not our home. Are you only engaging with other expats that you're comfortable engaging with? Or are you crossing the line? Are you crossing the barrier and, you're, and saying, you know what, I'm going to engage with Colombians. I'm going to engage with people who are local here. Colombians, if you're here, which you, many of you are Colombian, many of us are, I'm not, my kids are, um, many of you are Colombian. Here's the thing, in Colombian culture, it's often common to To think that maybe Americans or foreigners are up here and we're here. That is not true in the church. It's just not true. The truth in the church is that we are all desperate, needy sinners. Desperately in need of God's grace to us. Excuse me. And uh, we need each other. Americans and Africans and Europeans and Asians and Australians. They all need... Colombians and Colombians, you need them. We need each other. I'm encouraging you to cross those barriers. Do not assume that you need the other people to come talk to you. You need to go and talk to them and engage. Because if you do not know somebody, you cannot truly love them. I'm not talking about the saber, like I know their name. I'm talking about conocer, to really know them know each other. This is a challenge to all of us to be better at loving one another self-sacrificially. And the first thing you have to sacrifice is your own comfort. It's uncomfortable sometimes to engage cross-culturally or with people who you don't naturally relate to. But we need to be doing that for one another because we're the church and that is what the church is supposed to be. And it is when you know people, when you grow in those relationships, as those relationships build, the opportunities grow more and more for you to self-sacrifice even more and more and to feel the joy, the joy that it is given to you when you give of yourself to others. You meet their needs, meet them where they're at when you are uh, give up your time and your energy and your resources to be with them. I also want to encourage you, if you are attending, and maybe you have started to get to know people, but you don't know people on that deep level, this is a plug for our ministries. All of our ministries, every single ministry we do at this church, outside of Sunday mornings, including Sunday mornings, but even outside... Are designed with two purposes. One, yeah, you want to learn about who Jesus is. We want to teach you. You want to learn and grow in your relationship with God. But also, every single one of them has a connectional element. They're all about connecting with other people. Go get plugged in a men's Bible study. Go get plugged into a women's Bible study. Get your kids into the kids' programs. Kids attend the kids' programs. Attend youth group. Young adults attend young adults. Uh, college, university students attend university ministry. Why? well, yeah, we want you to grow and we want you to learn, but we also want you to connect with other people so that you can receive love and so that you can give love to others self-sacrificially, so you can know them, so the body of Christ can truly be the body of Christ that it was meant to be. I also want to challenge you, if you're someone uh, who likes to know other people, make sure that you are also someone who is being known. Let other people know who you are. Be open be vulnerable with other people. When you go to Bible studies, don't just share about you know, your, your pet that died, but share about the struggles you're having in your marriage. Share about the hardship you're experiencing as a parent. Share about your, your hardships in believing the gospel. It is when we are truly vulnerable that we can be known and it gives other church people the opportunity to be the church that they are meant to be, to love you and to point you to Jesus, which is what we desperately need. Grow, let's grow in ourselves sacrifice for other people. The second thing we see here, um, my next two points are shorter, don't worry. Um, the next two points we got here, the first is that reconcil- uh, true love, church love, should look like reconciliation. We should be people who are reconciling with one another. First person we see here is John Mark. John Mark, uh, you see him in verse 10. It says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom, whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. doesn't give us a lot to go on. And we see it's Mark, cousin of Barnabas. Maybe Mark's the guy who wrote the gospel. He is, or at least we believe so. Um, but what, what, is, what is Paul talking about? And Why would I talk about reconciliation with this guy? Well, if you know the story, you know the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, they're like the, you know, They're the guys who go on the mission trips together. They split up. They're not going together. Why? Because Paul wanted to go with just Barnabas. But Barnabas wanted to bring along John Mark. The problem is for Paul that John Mark had abandoned them. They had gone on this mission's missions journey, planting churches. And when things got tough, Mark left. When things got hard, Mark ditched them and ran to comfort. And Paul's like, no, we cannot bring him because he is immature. He is not ready to go on these trips with us. And so Paul and Barnabas, they split up. Paul goes with Silas and Barnabas, uh, mentors Mark for many years. So we don't really know what happened after that with Mark, except now all of a sudden Paul is speaking of Mark with honor. He is calling, saying, Mark, Mark, you be the one. Or, Welcome Mark. He's one of us. And later in his other letters, in Philemon, he says that Mark, or sorry, in 2 Timothy, he says that Mark is actually someone who's very useful to me. What does that imply? That implies that somewhere in the time between the hurt that happened and this moment here, there was reconciliation that happened. For this to be, for the relationship to be where it is, what would have had to have happened? Mark would have had to have come and apologized to Paul. Would have had to come and, and present himself humbly to Paul and say, Paul, I abandoned you, abandoned you in your time of need. Forgive me. And Paul would have had to do the equally humble thing of of forgiving him. He had to forgive him. We also see reconciliation here with Onesimus. Onesimus for you Bible scholars would know, is a runaway slave. He was from Colossae. His master was a man named Philemon. And remember, this isn't the same kind of slavery that uh, we think of in uh, the you know 19th, 18th century. This is uh, kind of a bond servitude. A person would have uh, been in debt or maybe needed somebody to take care of him or had an expense that they couldn't pay for. And so instead of Uh, instead of being able to pay it, they committed themselves to a master. They promised themselves to a master to work for a set number of years to pay off said debt. So apparently in this case, Philemon, who would have been Onesimus' master, had paid some sort of debt for Onesimus. But Onesimus, instead of fulfilling his contract, he runs away. He escapes, runs to Rome, comes and meets Paul by chance. And as he's in his time with Paul, Onesimus actually becomes a Christian. And as Onesimus becomes a Christian, Paul begins to teach him and to mentor him, saying, hey, you are a Christian. You have experienced the grace of God. You have experienced what God has done in your life. And this gives you the freedom now to go back to where you came from, to go back to the man against whom you have sinned and broken your word, and to repent. To apologize. To apologize but Paul doesn't leave him alone. He sends him with a letter, a letter to Philemon, in addition this letter to the Colossians, which says to Philemon, Philemon, this man is no longer your slave. Okay, he might still owe you things. He still might, uh, might have some dues that he needs to pay you, but he's not your slave. He's an equal brother in Christ. He's your brother and you need to treat him as an equal. In fact, he's, ch- he's challenging the entire church at Colossae not to view certain groups of people as less than, as if there's different levels of Christian in the early church. No. Yeah, there's different roles we have in society, but we are all Christians. We are all equal in God's sight, both slave and free, both man and woman, both Jew and Greek. We are all equal in Christ. Challenging the church there to maybe repent of ways that they maybe have had some elitism in their in their culture what is the point? The point is that the gospel Christian love calls us to reconcile it calls us to bring relationships that are broken back together, especially in the church, especially when we're all brothers and sisters of Christ. The problem is, often that is not what happens. And I think there's three ways we often avoid, or three ways that we do not reconcile. One of those is that we avoid. We decide, that person's hurt me, or I've hurt them, so I'm just going to avoid them to avoid all conflict. The second of those is we are passive-aggressive. That person's hurt me, so I'm going to make comments, and I'm going to be kind of short with them, because I want them to know that they've hurt me. The third of those is gossip and slander. That person's hurt me, so I'm going to talk about them to other people. You might do it in like a spiritual way. Oh, I'm going to need to pray for this person in their heart because they hurt me, right? But it's gossip. God does not call us to do any of those things. As Christians who have experienced the grace of God, we are called to go and to reconcile with our brothers and sisters, which means one of two things, or possibly, very probably, both at the same time. We need to be going towards the people who have hurt us in humility to tell them, hey, you've hurt me. But being with arms wide open, ready to receive their repentance and ready to restore the relationship. The second thing we might need to do, often at the same time, is we need to go to our brother and repent. We need to be going to them saying, you know what? I've really screwed up. I have hurt you. I know that what I said was inappropriate. I know that what I did was inappropriate. Some people just don't know that they've hurt you. And so when they come, you've hurt the, And so when you come to them, when people come to you and they confront you, we need to be people who are willing to be humble and listen. We also need to be people who are willing to forgive. As people have hurt us and as they repent, we do not need to keep holding those wrongs against them, but we need to be people who are willing to let them go and to restore the relationship and move again towards trust and camaraderie. This is the calling that the church has. The church needs to be an amazingly beautiful picture of what it looks to be reconciled because we know that we ourselves have received grace. The final thing I want us to see is consistency, consistent faithfulness. Love is consistent. Love is faithful. We see this here with Luke and Demas. Luke here in verse 14, all it says to us here is that Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Luke we know about a little bit because he wrote the gospel of Luke. He writes the book of Acts. Um, but we don't really know much about Demas, and we really don't know why Paul mentions them here, except when we look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote before he died. He was going to be executed soon after. He was He was writing his last letter to Timothy to let him know uh, the last things he wanted him to know because he was pretty sure that his death was imminent. And in 2 Timothy... He also writes about Luke and Demas in the same sentence. Listen to this. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Dalatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. You hear it in Paul's, just in the tone, the way he writes it, that he's deeply hurt. Demas, who he had called a, one of his fellow workers, essentially, in the book of Colossians, we know is one day going to desert him. But Luke's not. Luke is still with me. Luke alone is with me. He's got Luke still. Luke shows us what it means to be faithful. Demas maybe was with Paul for a time, but as things got hard, as the going got tough, kind of like John Mark originally had done, he left. He deserted him to pursue his own uh, comfort, God calls us to be faithful in our relationships like Luke. When I, hire, when I, not hire, when I uh, bring on new volunteers to our youth ministries, I'm the youth pastor here, um, one of the things I tell them um, is that, yes, we hope that you're able to have amazing conversations with these students one day. We hope that you, they come to you with their hard stuff, and they come to you, and they talk about all their, their difficult problems in their life, and we hope that they, you have opportunities to point them to Jesus but you may not have those conversations. You may not every week have uh, these amazing come to Jesus moments with our students. What we do want to ask you to do is we want to ask you to be consistent though. We want you to be there every single week because youth are like bloodhounds. They can smell it when you're inconsistent. They can smell it when you don't, you're not really there all the time. They can smell it when you don't, you're not committed to them. I think we all have that sense. We all have had relationships where we felt like we were putting in a lot, but we didn't feel like the other person really was there. Some of us need to hear this, that loving other people requires us to be consistent and faithful with them. Flakiness is not love. Flakiness is not love. Committed faithfulness is. I want to encourage us that as we love one another, that we don't just do it when we feel like it, but we stay loyal to our friends and to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Imagine a community that was, a, that was marked by these things, was marked by self-sacrifice, was marked by reconciliation, was marked by consistent faithfulness. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this church isn't those things. In a lot of ways, the Holy Spirit is clearly at work in this church. I, if I wrote a letter... Um, maybe to my supporters back in the States. And, you know, I wrote all, about all the people who send their greetings. I could write a letter about so many of you guys mentioning your faithfulness, your self-sacrifice, your, the ways you have reconciled with one another or with me, the ways that you have um, shown consistency in your relationship. I could, I could write those things. But our church always has room to grow. There's, there's many ways in which we could really grow to look more and more like this vision. More self-sacrificing, to be quicker to reconcile, to be people who are consistent rather than flaky. And if we were, it would be beautiful. It would be beautiful because that is what Jesus looks like. A church that is like that loves this way is a church that loves the way Christ Himself has loved us. Christ Himself is the center of all we do. He's not only the center, he's not only a good role model of what it looks like to love other people, but he is the one who empowers us to love other people by the way in which he loves us. Think about it. What is Jesus like? Jesus is self-sacrificing. Jesus is reconciles us. Jesus is consistent and faithful. In his self-sacrifice on the cross, as he comes, he gives up his glory in heaven as he comes to earth. What does he do? He does it, or why does he do that? He does it because he wants to give us everything. We have everything we could possibly need in Christ. We have all of the joy we possibly could ask for in Christ. Everything our heart longs for is ultimately met in Christ, and through his self-sacrifice, he gives us those things. In order to be able to give to others, you have to be full. You cannot give if you do not have anything. Christ, by his death and resurrection, gives us everything so that we are now able to give of ourselves to other people. Christ is the one who reconciles us. He is the one who, while we were not even looking for him, while we were in rebellion against him, Christ moves towards us. He moves first. He moves first to reconcile us because he wants to fix the relationship between us and God. He desperately longs to fix that relationship, and as he does, he accomplishes that through his self-sacrifice. He reconciles us to himself, meaning that we have a secure identity, which means that we do not have to hold on to our pride. We do not have to hold on to being right. We do not have to hold on to our own identity based on what we have done. We can go and humbly repent to others. We can quickly forgive when other people come to us because we know that we ourselves have been forgiven and are in need of forgiveness. Finally, God is the one who is, Christ is the one who is consistently faithful to us. He is the one who promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And his Holy Spirit is working in us consistently, never leaving us, holding on to us, continuously bringing us back from our own sin, driving us back The Lord calling us to our the sons of God, reminding us of who we are, convicting our hearts, and showing us our flakiness, the ways that we have hearts that are prone to wander, and calling us people, calling us to be people who are and have integrity, who are consistent and faithful in the ways that Christ Himself has been faithful to us. The work of the church is not built on the gifts of the leaders. It's built on the love of Christ manifested in the members of the body. As we know God's love for us in Christ, it changes us individually. And as it changes us individually, it changes the community. May we know God's love for us. May we know it deeply. May we know his self-sacrifice. May we know his reconciliation. May we know his consistent faithfulness to us so that it can manifest itself in us in the ways that we treat one another. Let's pray, Father God. Thank you so much for your uh, word. Um, thank you, Thou this just these normal people, these normal people who are just uh, in love with the gospel, in love with you, long to love one another. Lord, we just thank you for their testimony that strings true even today. May it encourage us towards greater faithfulness. May it encourage us to love self-sacrificially one another, um, to reconcile quickly. May it encourage us to be consistent rather than flaky. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.